Sarah Blocker here with Purposeful Strength. And on this podcast, I have Christy Harrison with me. She is an intuitive eating and anti-diet dietitian. She's also the host of an awesome podcast called The Food Psych Podcast. I highly recommend you go and check that out after this one. And in this podcast, I really wanted to have Christy on because I have so many questions still about intuitive eating. I love the idea of it. I'm learning so much about it. I'm in a course about it. Um, but I think there's still so much to discover, um, even like for my own personal journey and how I talk with clients and other people about it. And um, so in this podcast, we explore a lot of different topics. I honestly could have probably kept on going with these questions. But for today, I first wanted to find out a little bit more about Christy's journey and why this is so important to her because she she talks very impassioned. And after hearing her story, you can definitely understand why. We talk about how culture affects intuitive eating and what this might look like in different areas of the world. We talked about how socioeconomics plays a role here. I was very curious to know what she thought about athletes and weight classes, so we talk a little bit about that. Um, We talk about alcohol as well and how that plays a role. Um, We talked about body image and thoughts about missing or wanting to be in a thinner body, how to deal with that while still rejecting diet culture. And just talked a little bit more about Christy and how you can reach her and find out more information from her. So this was an awesome podcast. Again, I I learned so much um, continuing to learn about this topic. And I hope you guys really enjoy it. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Sarah Plocker here with Purposeful Strength. And on today's episode, I have Christy Harrison. So Christy, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So tell me first for all of our listeners, what you do and what you spend a lot of your time talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I am an anti-diet dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. And so I spend a lot of my time talking about diet culture, how it's harming you, why it, you know, what it is, how it's stealing people's time, money, well-being, happiness, um, and what you can do to reclaim your life and heal your relationship with food and your body. Uh, my background is as a dietitian. Like I said, I'm also a journalist. I've been a journalist for almost 17 years now, and that's how I got my start in covering food and nutrition and came around to this anti-diet way of thinking after, you know, 10 years of not be, or probably seven years, I guess, of, of being very, um, in the diet culture space as a journalist. So it's, it's definitely been an evolution for me too. That's awesome. And so, like you said, you've, you were in this space for a while and then what was kind of that trigger or like thing that made you kind of look at this a little closer and be like, Hmm, maybe this is not the right way to go about it. How did you get more into intuitive eating and passionate about it? Yeah. So my story is, I think, pretty similar to a lot of stories of people who come into this movement and end up doing what I do, which is that I had my own history of disordered eating. And so when I I miraculously was able to get through childhood and adolescence without um, falling prey to it, which I really think is a testament to, you know, both my parents kind of coolness around food, but also, um, my thin privilege, which is, you know, having been born in a thin body and never having anyone say anything about my weight, tell me that I needed to lose weight. Certainly doctors weren't breathing down my neck and telling me I needed to diet or anything like that. So I think I had that privilege of sort of being spared that 
weight stigma and that attention to my weight that allowed me to have an intuitive relationship with food to persist until I was in college. And then at around, I think I was 20, I went to, in my junior year of college, I went to Paris to study abroad for a year. And I had, I was on birth control at the time. I went to see my doctor before I left. And she was like, um, if you want like 12 months of birth control to like take with you to Paris, I have this sample, like samples of this other birth control pill that I can give you for free and you can take them with you. And I was like, great, I'm a broke college student. I'm all about free stuff. <laughs> so I <laughs> took these um, new birth control pills and started taking them. And then suddenly I had all these symptoms that I later realized were related to the birth control pill, but at the time had no idea, one of them being significant and pretty rapid weight gain. And so when I start, I had never had any experience of weight gain. I didn't really know what it was. Then suddenly I was unable to button my pants. I actually split my favorite pair of pants and I was like, okay, this, I have to like do something about this. Right. And that's, that's the message we all grow up with in diet culture is that even if you're not someone who quote unquote needs to lose weight or should be watching your weight, you still hear all of these messages all around you directed at other people or directed at, um, you know, cultural figures and stuff like that. So I had just absorbed all these messages. And then as soon as I recognized myself as having a supposed weight problem or deemed myself as having a weight problem, I just immediately locked into all the stuff I had always heard, like, you know, counting calories, mm -hmm, watching, right. you know, cutting out certain foods, watching what you eat. Um, this was back in 2002, 2003. And that was uh, like when Atkins was first becoming a real thing in the US. So, you know, in France, it was kind of all about just like, you know, not having dessert or cutting out certain things. But then when I got back to the US, everybody was obsessed with Atkins. And so I jumped on board with that too, started trying to do low carb, but I was also still counting calories, which Atkins, you know, like basically all diets are all about counting calories or restricting calories too. But then there's like these added macronutrient things that they um, tack on. So, you know, Atkins was like was the low carb thing. But then I also was ha I started having symptoms of basically I now know the disordered eating was causing these symptoms. Um, things like acne, irregular periods and finally like total absence of periods for uh, almost or more than a year. I think I had had missing period, um, you know, fatigue, weight gain or not weight gain. Uh, I was I perceived weight gain, I should mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. um, you know, fatigue, bloating, um, all of, you know, brain fog, like all these sort of nebulous symptoms. And I was looking obsessively for what could be causing them, not seeing the elephant in the room, which was my disordered eating. Right. And so, um, a friend who was into alternative medicine at the time suggested that, that I try going gluten-free that like, maybe it was celiac disease or maybe some just you know, subclinical gluten intolerance or whatever. So I tried gluten-free. I became obsessed with a gluten-free diet, even though <laughs> looking back, I realized like I wasn't even ever entirely sure it was helping. In my heart of hearts, I always questioned it, but I became sort of an evangelist for the gluten-free diet and started telling other people about it, started writing about it. This was, you know, now the beginning of my career as a journalist. And so I like, you know, specialized in food and nutrition journalism, food and nutrition journalism, like you do when you're obsessed with food because you're not eating enough of it. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me license to cover all of this stuff. And so, you know, as my career went along, I was in and out of 
sort of more and less severe periods of disordered eating on and off of gluten-free, on and off of low carb and, you know, trying to eat less dairy and all these different things. Um, Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, also came out in that early phase of my career and was very influential to me, as was the book Fast Food Nation and the work of Marion Nessel. And like, it's all this thinking about the food system and the food environment. And so I started thinking about, okay, I want to eat more sustainable foods, more whole, quote unquote, plant plant-based foods. Um, it was really the start of this whole kind of wellness movement that we now see, you know, 10 years later has really taken over and it's, it's become somewhat divorced from those roots of like Michael Pollan's journalism, but it, it actually mostly started there, you know, with him and Eric Schlosser, Fast Food Nation and all these influential books. So yeah, for my book, I, I traced the origins of diet culture. And it's really interesting to see that because I was experiencing it in tandem with it sort of happening in the culture. So yeah. it was pretty fascinating. But yeah, so, you know, I, I was very much um, part of that kind of early movement of fanning the flames of like, you know, cutting out gluten, cutting out, quote unquote, processed foods, um, eating less, you know, eating fewer things that had lots of ingredients and, and having, you know, foods that were more homemade and sustainable and farmer's market and all of that stuff. Um, and then I ended up working at a food magazine, Gourmet, which was partly really all about that food systems, food environment kind of stuff. You know, they were like Michael Pollan fans, but also had this really deep awareness of like food as culture, food as connection, culinary practices around the world and sort of the beauty of different culinary traditions and all of these things that it was really actually so helpful in healing my own relationship with food at a lot of levels. Um, the thing that I still was hanging on to though, was the sort of restriction and binging that I had been doing all along the, mm -hmm. the disordered eating that, you know, was being caused by my restriction. And so, um, I was still doing that, but kind of, you know, coming out of it cause I did have to see, I did have to be around people all the time who had pretty decent relationships with food. I ate most of my meals at work or with my coworkers cause we worked really long hours and I was just there all the time. So it, it really did sort of force me to get less disordered about food, but I was still on that spectrum. I still wasn't a full intuitive eater. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I went back to school to become a dietitian because they actually closed the magazine and I sort of heard rumblings that was coming, was looking for some like a career that was a little more stable than journalism to supplement my journalism career. I knew I still wanted to continue writing and being a journalist, but just have something else that was more stable with with that. So you know, my interest in food, food politics made sense to go back to school to become a dietitian and to get my master's in public health nutrition. And I also kind of secretly was like, and maybe it'll help me finally lose weight. Maybe it'll help <laughs> me finally get my quote unquote food issues under control, right? Mm -hmm. Still not realizing that all of that was being caused by the efforts at restriction that I was doing. And fortunately, when I went back to school, while there were a number of like really triggering experiences in school to become a dietitian, I also happened to discover the book Intuitive Eating, actually not through any of my classes, but through a book proposal I was working on that I never ended up writing the book for, but kind of became the jumping off point for my podcast and then laid the foundation for the book that I eventually ended up writing. So, you know, this was like 10 years ago. I was researching a book on a cultural history of emotional eating um, because I still identified as an emotional eater. And I was really interested in, you know, what is this concept of emotional eating? Where 
where did it come from? And started researching, you know, basically a lot of the stuff that I ended up uh, incorporating into my work later, which is about how diets drive binging and perceived emotional eating, how emotional eating is really not about emotions so much at all as it is about deprivation. Mm -hmm. And the deprivation can drive emotions and make it feel like you're eating for emotional reasons. But really, it's the it's the physical and mental deprivation that's causing both the emotions and the eating. Um, And that there's really nothing wrong with that kind of eating because it's actually responding to a very real need that your body has. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, through that process, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating. It really clicked for me because it was how I had grown up eating. And it was you know, I was like, oh, right, I know how to do this. It reminded me of how things had been before I had that decade of disordered eating and um, kind of allowed me to, to make, you know, that plus therapy, I should say. Therapy was always um, a huge part of my recovery, too. Both of those things together, I think, helped me get kind of the last way over the hump for myself in recovery from disordered eating. But, you know, like all things, it was sort of a slow unfolding process where I didn't, even though for myself I was recovered, I didn't um, bring that into my work with clients until a little bit later because I was still very caught up in the diet mentality and this idea that I had learned in school and just from growing up in diet culture that, you know, people in larger bodies, quote unquote, need to lose weight for their health. And so I was still prescribing to larger bodied people basically what I did in my eating disorder, you know, this the same type of stuff that had tripped me up so much in my relationship with food was like the prescription that we were giving to people that were deemed to need to lose weight. Right. And so, so the, it, you know, it wasn't until I really started specializing in eating disorders and going to conferences and learning the science on eating disorder recovery, um, you know, around the same time I started my podcast in 2013, that I realized, oh, wow, this is actually like intuitive eating is for everyone. And this principle, this practice of um, philosophy of health at every size, which is sort of the overarching uh, framework that includes intuitive eating, that's really the gold standard of recovery for eating disorders. That's really where we need to be aiming for everyone. And it's not just people like me who are naturally thin, who are allowed to have this peaceful relationship with food. It's really everyone who needs to be able to have that peaceful relationship with food. It's what we're all born with. It's what we all deserve. And it's really a human rights issue too, you know, that people in larger bodies are discriminated against in our society and that diet culture is oppressive. It's a form of oppression that particularly hinders and, you know, disproportionately affects and and oppresses people in larger bodies, especially if they have intersecting identities like, you know, being people of color or queer or trans or other marginalized identities, disabled, like those identities also make weight stigma worse for people. Mm -hmm. But also, weight stigma affects everyone, and that's what had really driven me into my eating disorder, too. And it's what had prevented me from getting a diagnosis because when I was going from doctor to, doc- to doctor trying to figure out what was going on with my health, why am I not getting a period, why am I having all these symptoms, nobody recognized that the cause of the symptoms was actually my disordered eating because I never became emaciated, even though I've always been in the so-called normal BMI range. And I was definitely lower within that range than what my body was meant to be. Uh, It still wasn't deemed to be, you know, too low, quote unquote, underweight. And so um, doctors never caught it. And so it really is interesting to think about that now from my perspective as a dietitian helping people heal their relationships with food to see like weight stigma affects everyone. Fat phobia affects everyone. Mm -hmm. And it 
disproportionately harms the largest the largest people among us, and we need to dismantle it in order to help create a more just and peaceful and sustainable world for everyone. And so really, you know, it, it's, it needs to be included in any discussion of human rights and any discussion of equity and social justice. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking us on that journey. That was a very comprehensive view of kind of everything that you went on. And I think it's very important to note that you experienced this a little bit later on in life. I think a lot of times we think of eating disorders, eating disorders as something that kind of like develops in childhood or when you're younger or, you know, at a certain age, but that's really not the case. I mean, it, it can be, but this is something that can happen at any time um, for a multiple multitude of reasons and you know like it doesn't discriminate based upon age it really doesn't and especially you know i think i think there's this misconception uh, in our culture that yeah it only affects you know teenage white wealthy privileged girls right that's right. kind of the like cisgender able-bodied girls that's that's the image that we have in our head of who gets eating disorders mm-hmm. when in fact there's tons of research and emerging research too, that like it really affects people across all ethnic identities, all gender lines and economic lines. It's really a pervasive problem. It just kind of shows up differently in different communities so that it might not look exactly the same or even be captured by um, clinical diagnostic criteria in the same way in different communities. Because, you know, in maybe the sort of adolescent teenage, you know, female population that's been studied the most, it manifests as this like objective, um, obvious fear of fat and fear of gaining weight. Whereas in say like a cisgender male population or even trans male population, it manifests as this desire to get bigger muscles. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, bigger and bulking is the, is the goal. So like fear of fat isn't as obvious or people might not even admit to it in a, clinical interview, but it's, it's actually the same underlying thing of wanting to change your body, manipulate your body size to meet some arbitrary standard. Um, that's the underlying problem for everyone. Right. Absolutely. And those are, let's kind of go along with that line a little bit. How do you think that culture affects this topic? No, I, I originally, these are kind of like, um, societal culture, cultural norms that you're talking about here. I'm also talking about like you go to a different country. Um, how do those cultural norms kind of affect intuitive eating or affect this topic? Are, are other countries and other areas talking about intuitive eating? Are other countries and other cultures needing to talk about intuitive eating? Like what are your kind of thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I think this problem of diet culture is largely largely a Western problem. And Mm -hmm. countries that are becoming Westernized, parts of the world that are becoming exposed to Western culture, tend to absorb diet culture along with our other cultural values, such that, you know, there's research showing like in the island of Fiji, I think it was in the 1980s or 90s, um, I forget exactly when, but they didn't have access to television at a certain point. And then they researched like before and after television came to Fiji or West, they didn't have access to Western television, I should say, like American television. Right. And so um, once American television came to Fiji, the cultural norms around thinness shifted dramatically very rapidly, such that like before TV, Western TV or American TV came to Fiji, 
there was no documented case of eating disorders there. It just wasn't a thing. And larger bodies were prized and seen as the sort of desirable standard. There wasn't this thin ideal. And then after Western TV or American TV came to Fiji, suddenly the thin ideal was like taking off like wildfire. And there was a rampant you know, rampant rates of eating disorders among people who had witnessed, who had, who had, um, absorbed these messages. And so, you know, fascinating. It's, it's wild to think about that, right? That we are exporting diet culture. We are exporting the thin ideal and the idea that you need to shrink your body in order to be worthy along with all of everything else that we're exporting around the world when countries get westernized. And so really, I think these days, you know, of course, it's so different everywhere you go in the world and in the developing world, the real issue is having enough food and food access and food security, right? That still is a huge problem for large, large swaths of the world. But I think among the developed world or the more developed world, um, the issue is now becoming, you know, this push and pull between a thin ideal and ever increasing abundance of food and access to food. And of course, access to food for less money and less labor is a really good thing, especially for countries that have never had that before. Right. So having enough food is a fundamental human right. And it's like the basis of Maslow's, you know, one of the basic um, tenets of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. And, and we see that, you know, people can't can't actually really do much, you know, pursue self-actualization in any way until those basic needs are met. So I don't want to like denigrate in any way the sort of exporting of like Western um, food abundance, right? I think that's actually a really positive thing in a lot of ways, but it also comes along with this exporting of the thin ideal. And then of course, with increasing abundant food in countries and communities that have um, historically had less access to food or less food security, often the response to greater food access is, uh, you know, sort of rebound effect, especially in the short term where people are like, oh my God, food, give me all the food, right? Mm -hmm. It's this very human, very natural response to restriction. And we see that in dieters too, by the way. We see that in both dieters and people who are food insecure, that when you're deprived of food, eventually you're going to swing over, you know, once food is available again, um, swing over to the side of like abundance and wanting to have it all. And eventually with enough um, sort of practice and support and continued access to enough food, people do settle in the middle of that pendulum. They're not swinging back and forth from restriction to binging and back again. Mm-hmm. But in situations of deprivation where you have intermittent food access or food insecurity, or in situations of deprivation like dieting, where you have this mentality that, oh my God, I'm gonna gain weight if I keep eating like this and it's really bad, so I have to buckle down and stop. That also creates that that swinging on the pendulum. I call it the restriction pendulum from restriction to binging or just abundance. Um, and so you know, the only way to kind of come to that peaceful middle place is to take away the restriction and take away the deprivation. And in the case of diet culture and sort of the way we've exported it around the world, it's like, you know, people are getting this abundance of food, oftentimes in situations where they were less food secure. So they're going to have that natural swing over to the side of abundance and like, oh, yay, give me all the food. But they're being met with this cultural ideal of ultra thinness that's saying, don't overeat. You're bad if you do. You're bad if you have a larger body. You you must lose weight stat. And so it's really setting people up to keep swinging back and forth on that pendulum and to never kind of reach a piece of place, a place of peace with food. So that actually leads 
very well into my next question. I wanted to kind of talk about how socioeconomics plays a role here. Now, I could see how intuitive eating could be maybe potentially challenging for people who are not making as much money, maybe don't have as good good enough access to food or even food that's maybe like pleasurable. Um, how can we talk about that for for people of, you know, all different incomes and, and with this, and with this kind of challenge. Totally. I think that's such an important thing to discuss because really intuitive eating is the default mode. It's what we're all born being able to do. It's, you know, being able to honor and trust our instincts with food and to get our needs met and to, you know, make sure that we are, um, satisfied and, you know, fed, right? That's, we all have that instinct. And so actually, you know, intuitive eating is possible in situations of food insecurity, but it's just going to look a lot different. It's just going to be, you know, I think food insecurity, what exactly does that mean? Yeah. So that means, um, you know, sort of a variety of things. It's, it's usually related to poverty and to not having enough money to be able to afford food consistently. So maybe, you know, you're not like, absolutely zero food ever, right? You do still have food coming in. You're probably eating every day, but you may not know where your next meal is coming from. You may not know when you're going to get your next infusion of uh, SNAP benefits, you know, commonly known as food stamps. You may not know, um, you know, it's sort of, it's having a, a situation where you just don't know that food is always going to be available. And so that create that's a really a form of trauma. It creates a lot of anxiety and deprivation for, for people. Right. Um, so in situations of food insecurity, you know, I, I mean, really there is this, this actually, um, analog to Maslow's hierarchy of needs created by a colleague of mine named Ellen Satter, who's a dietitian and, um, it's Satter's hierarchy of food needs. Right. And so the, the base of the hierarchy is really having access to consistent food, um, you know, not basically not being food insecure, right? Having your needs met on a consistent basis so that you can trust you have enough. And so that, and, and the top of the pyramid, the top of that hierarchy is like, thinking about nutrition in a sort of gentle way that's beneficial, um, but also that, you know, honoring your body's hunger, your fullness, your desires, getting pleasure from food, right? That's sort of the the self-actualized place that we can get to on this hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, th- I think that it's mis- it's a misnomer to think of intuitive eating as only the top of the hierarchy, right? It's only when you're fully self-actualized with food that you are doing intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. Actually, all of it, I would say, is intuitive eating because intuitive eating is about taking care of yourself with food and getting your needs met. And, you know, those needs sort of go up the hierarchy as you get each need met to like a more and more specific, more and more sort of granular need, right? The need for pleasure comes after the the need for access is met, mm-hmm. right? The need for um, variety or interest in food, right, comes after you know, the need for just sort of basically palatable food is met. So like, you know, all of it though is intuitive eating and you can work wherever you fall in that hierarchy, you can work to meet your needs. And so with people who are food insecure, they're really working at the base of that hierarchy to say like, how can I get more consistent access to food? How can I get my needs for food met reliably? And, you know, that can have that, you know, there are a lot of different strategies to, to, do that, right? But it can mean um, working to get more like SNAP benefits, working to, you know, if you're a parent, working to get um, 
like WIC benefits to help feed your kids, um, working to secure a steady job or a job that has healthcare benefits so you're not having to pay for that out of pocket so that you have more money left over for food, um, working to get like reliable transportation to and from the grocery store. You know, all of those little things that are just kind of logistical challenges for people having enough access to food can fall under what it means to like have an intuitive eating practice with um, economic, you know, challenges. That's such an interesting connection. I'd never thought of that before, but it makes, it makes a lot of sense as you're talking through it. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think intuitive eating is a right that everybody has, you know, that we all should be able to meet our needs with food. Absolutely. One of the things that you said before kind of made me write this question down. You, you said something to the effect of like, I, I was, I wasn't intuitively eating. I was still kind of doing some disordered eating. So if you are not eating intuitively, do you have, does that individual have disordered eating habits? Is it one or the other? I would say it's a, it's a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not black and white. It's kind of a, a spectrum from, you know, I would say full blown eating disorders are probably on one end of the spectrum and then full intuitive eating is on the other end. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the middle, there's all these different shades of gray. And by full-blown eating disorder, by the way, I don't just mean people who are diagnosed because there's a lot of like fat phobia that comes into play with diagnosis. As I talked about with my own experience, you know, I never got a diagnosis, even though at various points I would have met the criteria. Um, It was just, you know, sort of weight bias that stood in the way. And I'm someone who's, you know, in a thinner body. So imagine people in larger bodies. For example, I've seen a number of people in larger bodies who had who met the criteria for anorexia, except that they were not, you know, quote unquote underweight. And now the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual actually takes doesn't have a hard and fast weight criteria criterion. Um, but it used to. And so, you know, people could meet the need or meet the criteria for anorexia um, and still be in a much larger body. And so never have any hope of getting the diagnosis and the treatment that they needed um, for their disorder. So really, like you can have a full blown eating disorder and not have a diagnosis, but it just means like you're basically as far away as you can get from intuitive eating for you. You know, you're eating exclusively based on your food rules, your disorder, you know, your eating disorders, um, rules that it has for you. You're exercising in order to quote unquote, make up for food. You're using maybe other compensatory behaviors. Um, you know, it's, it's the polar opposite of intuitive eating. Right. And then disordered eating is really that sort of middle ground that, so many people fall into. There was a 2008 survey done by um, researchers at the University of North Carolina in combination with um, Self Magazine looking at, you know, their readership and how people fell on the, you know, disordered eating spectrum. And they found that 65% of women, of their women readers had uh, disordered eating and another 10% had what would be a full-blown eating disorder, although far fewer actually diagnosed. Wow. Um, so 75% total of women in this, you know, like 25 to 45 age, age range had some form of disordered eating or eating disorder. And That's oftentimes wild. when I mention, right. <laughs> and and often when I mention that statistic for people or the mention that statistic to people, they're like, that seems low. Actually, I feel like it's closer to a hundred percent, you know, cause I, I, think a lot of us know a lot of people who really struggle with some form of disordered eating. And dieting really falls on that disordered eating spectrum, right? So eating in a way that's designed to shrink your body or eating in a way that is not um, 
prioritizing pleasure and satisfying your hunger and your fullness and meeting your needs. Um, you know, there's medical nutrition therapy. I sort of put off to the side as like a different category where if someone truly has a diagnosis, not a false diagnosis, but like a real genuine medical diagnosis that necessitates eating a certain way. Say if you have celiac disease and you need to, you know, eat gluten-free, that's kind of a different story than someone who has self-diagnosed or gotten a bogus diagnosis. Cause there are a lot of bogus diagnoses out there that aren't actually backed up by science, like an IgG test or you know, one of those tests that gives you like a huge long list of color coded, um, you know, printout showing all the millions of things you're supposedly allergic or intolerant to. Those <laughs> got don't one of those have. back in the day. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Same here. Yeah, it's it's wild. Those things are not validated. Those are, are bogus. And actually the IgG testing method that they're um, based on IgG mediators in the blood are thought to be a marker of food tolerance of, of non like of desensitization to particular kinds of food. So if you, whatever foods show up on that panel for you are probably just foods you've eaten pretty recently that your body's like, Hey, we're cool. We're having this response to them showing that we are, we tolerate this food. Right. So yeah, something that you, you know, we're talking about there that I, I find so frustrating is, you know, when people are in bigger bodies, like you were talking about, they can have all these symptoms of disordered eating and, and people will be like, you know, they might even feed into it of like, great, keep doing it. Or, you know, encourage certain behaviors, um, and they never get diagnosed. And then on the other end, I feel like there is something that happens with people in thinner bodies where sometimes people come and say, you know, like, Hey, I have these challenges with disordered eating. And then sometimes they get shamed of like, well, but you're, but you're thin, like you shouldn't have to feel bad. And I, I feel like there's like this, this shame and this blaming and this, um, I don't know, just like negativity on both sides. And I wish there could be a little bit more of acceptance and a little bit more of like both parties can have, or I should say all parties can have these habits, these, uh, you know, negative disordered eating habits and neither, uh, no body size is necessarily wrong or bad. It's, it's just, we, we should all try to be more accepting and, and be more in this intuitive eating pattern. Does that make sense mm-hmm. to you? Kind of what I'm talking about here? Oh, totally. And it's, I think that's a symptom of diet culture. You know, the fact yeah. that like nobody is immune or, um, exempt from scrutiny in this culture really is a hallmark of the problems that we have in our, in our culture, the systemic oppression of larger bodies actually affects people in smaller bodies too. Cause like you said, when, you know, if someone in a smaller body, um, is trying to get help or, you know, t- it opens up to people that they have disordered eating. Oftentimes the response is this very dismissive, like, well, you yeah. don't need to, you don't need to do that. You're thin. Like, what are you doing? You know? And, and so shaming the person for the behaviors that they were so vulnerably trying to open up about, which is hard. I know because I also took a very long time to open up to anybody about it. And, you know, so getting sort of dismissed in that way and getting basically told like, well, you should know better or you shouldn't like, what are you doing trying to lose yeah. weight? You're crazy. Right. Except that in, in our culture, we're all taught and all conditioned that we should all be trying to make ourselves smaller all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
again, as I said before, like it disproportionately affects the very largest bodied people in so many ways, but everybody is constantly told that thinner is better and that we should be chasing thinness. And so of course, a lot of people are going to fall into that trap. And, you know, even if they're, I mean, I was always, you know, considered thin. I was always objectively thin. Right. And still, even after I had gained weight, I was thin, but I had, I, you know, told myself I needed to lose weight because that's what I had internalized from diet culture. And so, you know, I get it. Like we're all in this mess together. We're all in diet culture and fed these fat phobic beliefs that make all of us do really harmful things in search of thinness and so-called perfection. Yeah, absolutely. And so we all, we all, like you said, deal with these thoughts about, you know, maybe our, our bodies changing in one way or another. Do you have any advice on kind of how to deal with these thoughts about, you know, maybe either missing a slimmer body or wishing that you looked different while still owning this journey? Like, um, I, I know that people can be like, you know, I, I, I want to be intuitively eating and, and their pathway is, going along with that. But at the same time, having these thoughts of like, man, you know, I used to look one way or like, man, I see these images or how other people have changed and it would be nice to look like that. How do you, how do you deal with that? Oh yeah, it's so hard. And I think just like, first of all, validating those feelings and saying like, that is very normal. That is a part of the process. It's impossible. Although I wish I could wave my magic wand and just take away the diet culture thoughts from people's mind immediately so that Mm -hmm. they could have a much easier way of, you know, easier path towards intuitive eating. I know that's not possible. We live in this culture that has literally told you since birth, sometimes even since before birth in the form of like weight shaming your mom when she was pregnant with you, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it's, there are so many messages that we get every single day about how our bodies are supposed to be and supposed to look. And we've internalized those. And so of course you're going to have those thoughts. Of course it's going to be hard. And I think it's important to keep in mind, like, well, A, there is help available, right? That if you're really struggling with these thoughts and if they're holding you back from getting to the place of peace with food and your body that you want to be, you can find help in the form of, you know, dietitians and therapists who specialize in intuitive eating and eating disorders um, for people who are struggling with a really significant disordered eating, you can find eating disorder, treat, you know, f- more formal eating disorder treatment programs. Um, there are also you know, tons of podcasts out there and Instagram accounts and Facebook groups and Twitter accounts and all of the things, right, that people can explore in order to help um, support their journey. I have my book coming out. There's also lots of other great books on this stuff. Um, So, you know, surrounding yourself with resources and support, I think, is huge. And just arming yourself with the information and the data, Um, you know, the book Intuitive, or actually the Intuitive Eating Workbook, I think, is a great resource for that. Um, The book Body of Truth by Harriet Brown. Um, Body Respect by Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore, my book, Anti-Diet, which is going to be out in a couple months. Um, You know, just giving yourself all the information and the tools that you can in order to learn the the alternatives to diet culture right and giving yourself time and space also to feel those feelings but keep exploring keep challenging them and know that it's not going to happen overnight you're not going to just wake up one day and be recovered it is a real journey as much as that is like a cheesy formulation it, it actually feels <laughs> like that it feels like a slog sometimes and it also sometimes feels like oh my god I'm 10 steps ahead of where I thought I would be right now that's really cool you know there are those moments too um but 
it's, yeah, you know, having patience and having compassion for yourself in this process, I think is huge because of course you're going to struggle. Of course, those ideas and thoughts are going to be there with you. And can you also connect to something larger, like the larger goal or reason why you're wanting to recover, wanting to feel better in your body so that you can free up your mind to do other things, right? I'm sure that there are like so many reasons that you want to be here on this planet doing other things with your time, not just, you know, spending your days and nights obsessing about food and exercise or going to the gym obsessively or all of that stuff, you know, the stuff that takes us away from what we really want to be doing, what really brings us pleasure and joy and connection in this world. Right. Big fan, big fan of therapy. So I always, I always love that Mm -hmm. as a suggestion if it's for you. One of the things that I do, and you can totally tell me if this is, you know, maybe not the best idea, but I, um, I would notice that like, if I was looking on, you know, social media or things like that, and I would see photos of people, let's say with like really cut abs, like I've never had abs, never will have abs, even at like my absolute unhealthiest thinnest didn't have them. Um, but I'd look at people with abs and be like, man, like that looks so awesome. That looks sick. And, you know, be a little bit envious. And then I would look at photos of people with like curvier, bigger bodies and, and then also recognize their beauty. And so I started even just looking at bodies more so that looked like mine and that had similarities to mine and maybe were, um, you know, had some more curves or were less, um, you know, less ripped or, uh, Mm -hmm. not as thin. Like, do you think that that's something that's beneficial or is this still kind of looking, I know it's still like looking outside of yourself, but just curious on your opinion of that. I think it's really beneficial to look at people in larger bodies and to retrain your aesthetic to, to include those folks in your definition of beauty. I think that's wonderful. And I think it's been so healing for a lot of my clients and for me as well. And colleagues of mine, you know, have said that that's like, especially colleagues in larger bodies, like Jess Baker has said, you know, that revolutionized her relationship with her body was just like Mm -hmm. looking at, um, amazing, different, diverse photos of fat people and and seeing herself represented because she never did before, you know? Right. And so I like that word of representation because I think that's a lot mm -hmm. of what it, what it stands for. Totally. And she uses the word fat in like a reclaimed sense, you know, fat Mm -hmm. positive, fat acceptance. And, and that movement that, you know, fat acceptance movement, I think is really beneficial for people to, to like lurk around and see, you know, even if you're not ready to post your own pictures of yourself in a larger body, rocking a visible belly outline or something, can you look at other people doing it and see the beauty in that and see the, the, power in that and the activism in that, you know? Um, and I would say, you know, sort of further to what you said, like, I would also unfollow the people with abs. I would unfollow, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like, yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. Unfollow anyone with abs, right? Like, you know, if they're, if they're showing off their abs, let's say, if they're use if they're presenting that in a way that feels triggering to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just monitor your responses to to your social media feed. I know it's tough because we spend a lot of time just scrolling through and so it can all happen so fast. I've started trying to kind of notice for myself like, God, how many pieces of content have I taken in in the last five minutes just by scrolling? You know, it's, it's huge and it can yeah. have a really profound effect on your mood. But try to notice like what specific 
pieces of content are triggering for you? What what have you read from someone in your feed that feels icky, that makes you feel like, oh God, I better go do some crunches now, or oh God, I need to cut out this and that food, or I need to change my body in some way because I need to look like that, or because mm-hmm. now I feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to those those responses for yourself and unfollow or mute the people that you that trigger that in you because, you know, to be able to kind of recover in this world is already so hard and you don't need those extra triggers popping up in your feeds all the time. Right. Um, awesome. I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. Um, so as a, as a coach, there are a lot of sports and things that use weight classes. And I'm curious to know what your opinion is on, athletes who need to be in a certain weight class and how is there a way for you to kind of use intuitive eating in this world and still be able to you know really push their competitiveness oh it's so tricky weight classes are are such a problematic thing I think that you know the best approach that I've seen for people who compete in sports with weight classes other than taking a really hard look at is this the sport for me or is this something that is really standing in the way of my recovery and maybe yes. there's another sport that I can practice that gives me that same you know joy and and uh, release that doesn't have those you know, mm-hmm. those weight classes involved. Um, but you know, if you do, if, if you really feel wedded to a sport that has weight classes, I think throwing out the idea that you need to be, cause I think the problem with weight classes, you know, it, I don't think they're necessarily problematic in and of themselves because at the very basic level, they're just meant to be like, we don't want a person who's really huge fighting against, you know, wrestling, let's right. say a person who's really small because that's an unfair advantage does, for the bigger it, person. It like it's going to make sense. Yes. Be unsafe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, so we want to have people who are roughly similar in size competing against each other. So, you know, just looking at it in that sense, you can let your body get to whatever size it wants to be because we can't control our size long term anyway, right? And with intuitive eating and health at every size, the approach is, you know, practicing these self-care practices of intuitive eating, joyful movement, letting go of diet culture, letting go of the efforts to control and shape your body and letting your weight fall where it may. And that is, you know, the weight that's really sustainable and appropriate for your body. That's what your body wants to do, right? Letting your body call the shots on the size that it wants to be. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can still be training for your sport. You can still be practicing and doing the, you know, doing the things that you need to do to get good at whatever you're competing at. Um, But also, you know, and I think I would say that some coaches will say, oh, you need to be lighter to be better, to have better performance. But I call bullshit on that because I don't know if I can swear. Sorry. But, yeah, you can. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, that is um, that's a, a diet culture belief that is not really borne out in a lot of people's individual experiences because yeah. a lot of athletes will see that when they're starving themselves, when they're under eating, they're also underperforming. Totally. They're much more tired. They don't have the energy. They don't, they literally don't have the energy going to their muscles to power them. And when they're adequately fueled, when they're allowing their body to be at the weight it wants to be, they actually have a lot more power and stamina and performance. Um, So, you know, I think with weight class sports, it's like letting your body recover to whatever weight it wants to be and then competing in that weight class. And if seeing the number is triggering for you, which I know it is for so many people, I would say do your weigh-ins when you're 
being weighed for the weight class or whatever, do them standing backward on the scale, ask the person weighing you not to say the number, Mm -hmm. not to show you the number or whatever. Um, Obviously, you're going to know what weight class you end up in, but you don't have to like attach to that number Mm -hmm. in that way. And so that that'll just allow you to, you know, practice the sport and also practice your recovery. And I should say, too, that for a lot of people who have a compulsive relationship with exercise or where exercise is really part of your disordered relationship with food, um, it's often really beneficial to take a break from any structured physical activity, including your sport. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's really what your body needs in order to heal, what your mind needs in order to heal. So consider that if you're someone who is struggling with recovery and also a competitive athlete or just a, an amateur, you know, like a, a gym person or whatever, right. um, considering giving up structured activity for a while because you, you'll still get activity in your life. You'll still walk around and do laundry and chores and all that stuff. But, um, you know, just, Stepping away from structured movement, I think, is super important for a lot of people on this journey. Mm-hmm. Now, you had also mentioned something in the beginning um, briefly about like gaining weight or massing. Do you think that those are are just as damaging as trying to restrict? Do you think that this is something that people should try and stay away from as well? I do. I mean, I think it's it's, you know, obviously there are nuances because if someone was, um really weight suppressed and now they're trying to get back, they're trying to restore to a place that's beneficial for their body, then of Mm -hmm. course, like eating more is great. So I would never want to say that that's, that's something you should avoid. You should definitely eat more and allow your body to get to the restored place that it wants to be. Um, but this idea of like bulking up or massing, like you said, is, is the problem, right? Is, you know, pushing your body to these, um, unnatural places of muscle mass. And also, it doesn't usually just end with trying to bulk up. It's like bulking up in a particular way, right? So there's right. also like, there's quote a, unquote, there's cutting. restriction. There's, there's restriction. It, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's like low carb stuff. There's fasting stuff. There's keto stuff. There's all of it, right? Like people do all these diety restrictive behaviors and also are trying to like eat inordinate amounts of protein or whatever it is to try to bulk up. So it's not one or the other. It's kind of both usually in those cases. Right. That is very true. Okay, another slightly random question, but I I haven't necessarily read or heard anything talking about drinks or alcohol. How do how do you approach intuitive eating with these subjects? Yeah, that's that's also a tricky thing, and it's I think very individual um, because of course if someone has a pre-existing issue with alcohol or they know that they have a complicated relationship with it already and that they feel better without drinking, then of course like do you self care is so important. Your sobriety is important. Like that's awesome. Right. But I think it's, it's trickier in a grayer area when people are avoiding alcohol to avoid calories or carbs. Right. So they're basically lumping alcohol in with their diet. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes another, another food group that they're dieting around. Um, or when they're afraid of it because when they drink, they end up eating and they're trying, you know, they're restrictive normally. And suddenly like when they drink, they find the breaks are off and they end up binging or eating foods that they were trying to restrict. I think those are both signs that the problem is not the alcohol. The problem is your relationship with food in your body. And so, yeah. And so when people are in that scenario, 
uh, and, the, and they recover their relationship with food and their body and their healing, sometimes it's actually important for them to challenge themselves to drink and to have alcohol just as they would challenge themselves to bring back bread or cookies or dairy or anything that they've forbidden themselves, right? Mm -hmm. To challenge themselves to break those food rules and bring those things back. Obviously, I would never recommend that to anyone who had a problem with alcohol also, right? If it was like, right. I'm an alcoholic and I avoid alcohol in part because of calories. It's like, okay, well, let's maybe do some mental activities around getting you to stop thinking about calories in general and, you know, stop applying that to alcohol too. But like, let's preserve your sobriety because yeah. you need so, but I think for people who don't have an issue with alcohol, I think it is really worth challenging yourself around what are the reasons you're afraid of it and, and, or, you know, if you find yourself binge drinking, it's possible that part of that binge drinking, cause there's kind of a spectrum of, um, substance use disorders, right? Some people have more of like the physical addiction and there's a genetic component to it. And some people it's more of a behavioral addiction. And sometimes that behavioral addiction can be triggered or exacerbated by a lack of food. Because actually if you like don't have enough food in your life and then you start drinking, some people, and I actually happen to be someone like this where, you know, when you first start drinking on a given night or whatever, it kind of dampens your appetite and you're not as hungry, mm -hmm. but your body, you know, if you're someone who's been restricting, your body is still very much deprived and in a deficit. Um, it can actually start to trigger binge drinking because you start drinking and it's like, oh, your body's at least getting some energy from that alcohol that it needs. And maybe you end up drinking, you know, quote unquote, drinking your calories, right? Yeah. Which is... A kind of a smart thing for your body to do. It's getting its energy needs met by hook or by crook. It's doing what it needs to do to help you survive. But unfortunately, that has the the downside of like, you know, giving you a, a huge exposure to alcohol, which can be really problematic. Right. So, you know, if you're someone who, who does have an issue with binge drinking, I think it's also important to look at how might you be setting yourself up for that by being deprived of food. Or over-exercising, you know, because even if you think you're eating, quote-unquote, eating enough, if you're over-exercising, if you're, if you're doing so much physical activity that your needs are still not being met by the food you eat, that can also be um, putting you in that situation where binge drinking might be more likely. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I can definitely really – I'm thinking back to – times where I was training for something specific and, and there were times where I was like, okay, for, so for this month, I'm not going to drink alcohol. And I did that a, a couple times. And then one of the times I was training for something and I was like, you know, what? I'm not going to restrict alcohol anymore because I actually feel more stressed. And when I said that people were like, um, that doesn't seem like a good thing. And I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going out drinking and like binging every night, but it just feels more stressful to say that I can't have this thing. And so that's kind of, you're kind of, uh, proving my point a little bit, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Cause if it's, I mean, if it's like, Oh, I really would love a beer on a hot day or, yeah. you know, margarita sounds really good with this Mexican meal or something like that. You know, that in of itself is fine if you don't have a problem with alcohol. Right. And it's, yeah. it can be part of the pleasurable relationship with food that you have, but yeah, the issue becomes when it's compulsive or you end up drinking so much, you feel really bad the next day or all of that stuff. Exactly. Awesome. All right, Christy, I want to be respectful of our time. So um, if you could just tell people how to find you, um, all of your resources and things like that, I'm sure people want to hear more from you. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. Um, so my podcast is probably a really good place to start for people listening because they are already listening to podcasts. So you can find <laughs> find my podcast wherever you're listening to this. Um, it's called Food Psych. That's F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H. You can also um, find my website with more information about the podcast at christyharrison.com, um, where I also have information about my forthcoming book that is called Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness through intuitive eating. And it's going to be out on December 24th in the US and I think December 26th in the UK and um, uh, what are they called? Territories, UK, you know, former Commonwealth countries or whatever, um, <laughs> Australia and what have you. <laughs> so um, you can find out more about my book on my website too or at christyharrison.com slash book. Um, and then I have a free guide that is uh, called Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. It's actually an audio guide. Um, and you can get that at christyharrison.com slash strategies. Awesome. Thank you so much. You've been really, really helpful. Like I said, I've been, uh, I've been looking into this for a long time and, uh, you know, I think this in of itself, like you were talking about is a, is a journey. And even the educational process is a journey and you've really helped me answer a lot of the questions here. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad. 